You're listening to a podcast from the College of Arts and Humanities at University College Dublin. In this podcast, an extract from Writing the History of Civil War. This UCD Centre for War Studies seminar gathered some of the leading scholars of civil wars together to discuss their unique approaches to the subject. In this episode, Glenda Gilmore, Peter V. and C. Van Woodward Professor of History at Yale University, current holder of the Mary Ball Washington Professorship of American History at UCD, talks about writing the history of the American Civil War. This seminar is also available as a video on historyhub.ie. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. Thank you. I found this uh, incredibly interesting, and also reading David Armitage's book, which looks at civil wars from Rome onward. So just to respond to sort of put out a groundwork that we can discuss later before I turn to what I wanted to say today, the American Civil War is very different in many ways from that sort of neighbor-to-neighbor, very local, clan, et cetera, group that uh, we just heard about. There are ways in which it's similar, and I think it's really productive to think about that. It's a more traditional war uh, than those that we've just heard described. It is such a stark geographical division that the only place that you have that sort of neighbor-to-neighbor conflict is on the border states. And we also have a war within a war in the United States, a guerrilla war in the border states, Jesse James, et cetera, and also in areas that weren't um, plantation states. It is the American Civil War is so costly that on one day at the Battle of Shiloh, more people died, more Americans died than in the Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War. So the carnage leading into barbarity is uh, astounding, and it astounds people at the time. They never expected this. They saw more of a a smaller kind of engagement. Um, Generally... People have argued that uh, the American Civil War is not a total war. Yet the equivalent today of America's population, 7.9 million people would have died, given the population then. And one of the reasons people are beginning to think that we see the Civil War as uh, not barbarous is the way that the Union kept records um, It's always been thought of as a low-rape war, yet they had another word for rape in the official records, which was pillaging. And uh, it's it's completely obfuscated what's actually going on. I don't think it was anywhere near a scale of barbarity, except on maybe a Klotzwitzian sort of scale, which is a more mechanized killing machine. They had no idea what was in their hands. They had no idea of the outcome. So... um, our task this evening is to discuss why we write about the Civil War, what writing about the Civil War is like, which I will do, but I'll start with a caveat. For most white Southerners of a certain age in the United States, it's difficult to speak of writing about the Civil War without talking about living the Civil War, coming to terms with how the American Civil War shaped our lives Even for me, born some 86-odd years after the end of the Civil War, it molded my identity and politics. Until I was 20, I stood up 
every time the band played Dixie. Indeed, I was required to. It was played after uh, the national anthem at every event, whether a concert or a sporting event or a political rally. My family taught me never to say, quote, the Civil War, instead, the war between the states. And you can, there are many more, more pejorative terms than that. A framed um, poster on the wall of the 53rd Confederate Regiment, Company F, showed my ancestors' names at, who fought at Gettysburg. They were captured and reported back that the Yankees were actually very nice to them. I, this, of course I was taught that the Civil War was never about slavery. It was about states' rights. I once um, was at a wedding sharing a table with a friend of Strom Thurmond's who's a South Carolina senator, and the boy's name... The man's name I was sharing the table with was States Rights Graham. (laughs) So this goes deep. White people in the American South during the century following the Civil War had dual alliances, one to the nation, but perhaps even more fervently to the South, even to the Confederacy itself. C. Van Woodward, a white Southerner and a historian of the South, put it this way in his book, The Burden of Southern History. Quote, to establish identity with reference to our faults was always the simplest for the Northerners. For whatever their reservations about our virtues, our critics were never reluctant to concede to us our vices and shortcomings. White Southerners had tremendous inferiority complexes, which they attempted to overcome by embracing something that they called Southern heritage. White Southerners were losers in a nation of winners. They were seen as racists on the wrong side of history, still suffering economic deprivation until the late 1950s. They were poor in a nation of plenty. Even worse, they were actually traitors to their own country. So immediately after the war, despite the fact that they were no longer a nation, they set about creating one of the most powerful and long-lasting national myths ever promulgated despite a plethora of evidence that white Southerners had embraced an ever more virulent pro-slavery ideology from 1830 to 1860, despite the fact that they had tried to extend slavery to the Western territories and take over the entire nation, despite the fact that they had fomented an insurrection against the country, they rewrote history and set to work creating a culture that glorified their cause. In this new iteration, they were benevolent people who had been stuck with caring for an enslaved race, and they only wanted to be left alone to sort out that problem. Any ongoing interference after the war with what they then called the, quote, Negro problem was misguided, even seditious. Northerners, on the other hand, had threatened to free their enslaved people, and they violated the United States Constitution by not allowing the southern states to exit the compact. The United States, my teachers always said, was a republic. It was not a democracy. For over a century, this was what was taught in public schools in the South, what was memorialized in town squares, and what became southern heritage. A glorious lost cause had caused a rift between brothers, north and south, now resolved, and we must honor both sides. 
The losing side in the American Civil War triumphed in national memory. Perhaps the most famous and popular Civil War historian in the 1950s, Bruce Caton, wrote, The lost cause ideology has been an asset to the entire country. The Confederate legend saved us. He might have more accurately said the Confederate legend saved only white America for white Americans. The truth and task of reconciliation was simply too monstrous for white people to live with. Confederates became rebels with a noble cause, not traitors. The psychological burden of living with the horror that the Confederacy had wrought on the entire nation was simply too great to be reckoned with. It had to be rewritten and embraced. The Confederate flag flew over the South Carolina state capitol until 2015, and it is still ubiquitous across the South. Every other high school called its team the Rebels. However, lost cause mythology, of course, did real political work. It could only have triumphed because white people across the country wrote African Americans out of the story. It provided protective color, cover for a century of systemic discrimination, disenfranchisement, <clears throat> economic persecution, and violence against black Southerners. In this long tale, the aftermath of the American Civil War, it was that that ultimately enraged me, allowed me to remain seated for Dixie, and made me a historian. With the civil rights movement of the late 1950s and 60s, that myth fell apart. A generation of white Southerners suddenly faced a century of lies that they had been told, lies in the family, lies on the street, in the courts, and in the archives, and began writing truer histories of slavery, the Civil War, and its aftermath, which in the United States we call Reconstruction. As I began to write about formerly enslaved people who lived through that period, I understood for the first time the power of history to erase truth in the service of a flawed national agenda. The shock of leaving the cult of the lost cause, of having been betrayed in the most fundamental ways about who I was and where I lived and what it stood for, has been a powerful engine for my scholarship. What can the civil, American Civil War teach us about civil wars more generally? I learned a lot just then, and I deeply admire David Armitage's Search in Civil Wars, A History in Ideas, as a guide to probe and analyze the phenomenon over place and time. His definition of a civil war is, quote, a war between citizens. And it's useful in the American case, particularly because it was a war among citizens in which there was also a large group of non-citizens, African Americans, free and enslaved. Armitage is concerned with providing a frame that will enable us to structure governments, perhaps to prevent civil wars, to understand how they arise, perhaps with the possibility of uh, stopping them, and to draw lessons that can be put into place to prevent them. When we think about generalizing the American Civil War, I would suggest there are at least three fruitful areas of inquiry. First, and this is a concern, no doubt, driven by America's current political crisis, it seems to me that the construction of the Constitution contributed to the rise of the Confederacy. At a time today when in the U.S. the founders' intentions are venerated 
and constitutional originalism will be guiding our legal decisions for decades to come. It is important for us to recognize the Constitution as a flawed document. The founders, people who had led their own revolution against another government, feared centralized power and faced making an alliance with southern colonies, whose foremost concern was to protect the institution of slavery. The result was a document that espoused liberty, but compromised it at every turn. The three-fifths compromise. The South wanted to be counted in population with its slaves, but, uh, of course, slaves were not citizens, so they compromised and said, okay, we'll count them as three-fifths of a person. The Senate which is with, has two members from, from every state, regardless of population, and the Electoral College, which just second-guessed the will of the American majority as a whole. The result is a document written to be loose enough to contain fracture between the states. One might think that looseness could contain faction, but pro-slavery Southerners use this looseness to reinterpret, to reinterpret law to their advantage at every turn, especially to extend slavery into the territories, eventually leading to rebellion. Indeed, the United States might be a republic, not a democracy, if recent history is any rule. Today, we are reaping the whirlwind of a right-wing force intent on getting their way by manipulating the looseness of that republicanism to their advantage. Second, in thinking about civil wars, at least in the American case, aftermath is everything. Geographical, economic, racial, and ethnic divisions that give rise to the war are often unsettled, even exacerbated in its aftermath. It is exceptionally difficult in a civil war to occupy the losing region, reconstruct its government, restructure its society, and ultimately bind it to the nation against which it rebelled, which is the cause, the purpose that won in the aftermath. Armitage uses the metaphor of illness and disease to describe a civil war. I would suggest that curing the disease only begins when the war ends. Historians and political scientists can profit from comparing the processes of national reconstructions. In the case of the United States, reconstruction failed spectacularly. The civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s even named itself the Second Reconstruction, an attempt to make right the cost of the Civil War by making African Americans full citizens. Finally, since the illness of civil war is not cured with war, the work of preventing civil war falls on historians. Its illness lingers, sometimes in remission, in ways that history and culture mythologize the war. The hegemony of the myth of the lost cause was for decades promoted by historians and allowed the divisions of the Civil War to fester for a century, even to this day. It enabled the South to move, the white South, to move rapidly from enslavement to debt peonage, carceral control of black Southerners, extra-legal violence against African Americans. It taught, literally taught, generations of white Southerners to be racist. 
And now it threatens once more to divide the United States. The rise of our far right there is virulent, and it is a far right that embraces and even expands lost cause myths. When a deranged white boy spouting those myths about African Americans, quote, raping our women, can massacre black church ladies in Charleston, or when the president of the United States can say of a violent white supremacist rally designed to save Confederate statues in Charlottesville, Virginia, that there were, quote, good people on both sides, my country is in mortal danger. Victims of a century and a half of miseducation about the Civil War, Americans are ill-equipped to deal with the crisis at hand. This suggests that there is constructive work for historians to do in the wake of civil war. Certainly, we should be heartened by structures for healing and learning, such as truth and reconciliation commissions in war's aftermath. But even they cannot withstand the subsequent onslaught of rewriting history and reshaping culture that occurs for decades after civil war. In truth, civil wars go on even for centuries after they end. It's up to historians and political scientists to fight the myth-making that distorts the record, even when that myth-making is put to the task of national healing. If we do not enter the public debate, exert influence on the school curricula, and engage in the cultural sphere to dispel those myths, they triumph. And other nations will find themselves, as the United States does now, fighting the same civil war over and over. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the College of Arts and Humanities at University College Dublin. The Writing the History of Civil War seminar is also available as a video on historyhub.ie.